Welcome to the Nova Podcast. Welcome to the Nova Podcast. I'm Rebecca McFall, a violinist with the Fry Street Quartet, which is in residence at the Kane College of the Arts at Utah State University. And we're also currently serving as co-music directors for the Nova Chamber Music Series in Salt Lake City. This is episode four of the Crossroads series, and the subject is food. Recently, my colleagues in the Fry Street Quartet, alongside physicist Dr. Robert Davies, premiered the film version of Rising Tide, the Crossroads Project a multidisciplinary performance project addressing issues of global sustainability. To talk a bit more about this project, I'd like to introduce my co-host, colleague, and full disclosure, also my husband, Rob Davies. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you. Uh, so, and hello, everybody. I'm Rob Davies, as you heard, professor of physics at Utah State University, focusing on global change and critical science communication. And as you heard, co-creator of the Crossroads Project, along with my friends, the, the Fry Street Quartet. So I want to thank, again, the Nova Chamber Music Series uh, and the Utah State University and the Kane College of the Arts for supporting this work, and a bunch of other folks uh, as well, who we will tag at the end of the show. Um, so just a few words about Crossroads uh, as before we get going. And so Crossroads is about the rules of nature uh, as many of you who have seen the film uh, will know, uh, and the rules of civilization and their current misalignment. And we talk about water, we talk about life, and food and society. And with respect to society, we talk about our energy system and our food system and our economic systems. So today, as we say in the performance, uh, we've talked about water on this podcast, we've talked about life, and now it's time to talk about dinner. And so if you haven't seen the film, uh, you can view it for free. The Nova Chamber Music Series is making it available on YouTube. We'll put a link in the comments below uh, and in the banner below me. Um, but just to start off today's conversation, here's just a taste of how we talk about dinner, as I say, in the performance. So we'll just take a look at a short clip here. We need to eat. And we've talked about water and we've talked about life. It's time to talk about dinner. And there are pieces of the biosphere, very special pieces called primary producers or autotrophs. Special, well, because they feed everyone else. They're in the oceans and they're on land, and most of them are microscopic. In the oceans, phytoplankton underlie all. Thousands of microscopic species living near the surface, in the light, moving energy from sun to substance and nourishing everything. <laughs> like krill. And together, phytoplankton and krill feed the whole of the oceans, from the tiniest creatures to the grandest. Along the way, phytoplankton produce half the world's oxygen, half the breath you just took. <sighs> Produced by these fine fellows, thank you very much. Now on land, we're tempted to think of plants as primary producers, but no, no, no. You see, underlying plants is soil. And I'm not talking about dirt. This is rock 
pounded to clay by water over millions of years and then infused with life. So that's a little example of how we're talking about it in this part of the performance called Forage, which is looking at the foundations of Earth's living systems, what it is that feeds everyone else. And there's one more piece that I want to play for you today, and that's a little bit later in the performance when uh, we're talking about humanity's different systems. And this is what we have to say about humanity's system of food. Anthroposphere is also industrial food, a system of food feeding billions by draining the land of water, washing away the soil, and emptying the oceans of life. No longer a system of agriculture for human well-being, but of agribusiness for shareholder return. This is a high input, high waste, low diversity, high impact system of food in overshoot that we absolutely know will not last because physics supersedes math. Well, so clearly we're trying to cover quite a bit of ground in just a short amount of time in this performance. Um, and so these podcasts are intended, of course, to give us more room to explore these stories and the telling of these stories in this way. And if you've been watching the podcast, you know that to help us do that, we've invited both scientific and artistic voices to the conversation, practitioners. Uh, and one such, uh, one such voice uh, today is Rebecca McFall herself, today my co-host. But we have another very special guest with us whom I'm very excited to have here. I've been a big fan for over a decade, and this has been an opportunity to, to get to know this person much better, and we're very excited to have him here today. So, Rebecca, could you tell us who's joining us today? Yes. Our guest today is Chris Smage, and in his own words, he's a former social scientist, an improper farmer, and author. So Chris has co-worked a small farm in Somerset, Southwest England for the last 15 years. Previously, he was a university-based social scientist working in the Department of Sociology at the Uni University of Surrey and the Department of Anthropology at Goldsmiths College on aspects of social policy, social identity, and the environment. Since switching focus to the practice and politics of agroecology, he's written for various publications such as The Land, Dark Mountain, Permaculture Magazine, and Statistics Views, as well as academic journals such as Agroecology and Sustainable Food Systems and the Journal of Consumer Culture. Smage writes the blog Small Farm Future and is a featured author at resilience.org. Chris, you're joining us from Somerset today, I think. Welcome and thanks so much for being with us for this discussion. So well, I gave a very... <laughs> very short bio of you, but I'd like to invite you to tell tell us more about yourself and perhaps specifically about the pivot point in your life that kind of took you back to the farm. <laughs> yeah, good question. I wish I wish I had a good answer to that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 studied, um, I, I studied anthropology as, a, as an undergraduate degree um, in, in London and here in England, and, and I guess I I got interested in peasant farming then um, and, and partly in terms of the way that peasants, um, uh, you know, are, are partly growing food for themselves, but are partly locked into these bigger global systems. And I was kind of interested in how um, 
you know how that figured in their their thinking um uh, funnily enough at that time i had i knew absolutely nothing about growing or farming myself it was kind of a <laughs> an intellectual sort of uh, interest and then you know the way life works i ended up kind of doing other things and putting that aside for 10 15 years not not really focusing on food or farming or environmental issues at all and then i sort of gradually switched into the fact that you know we had these big issues you know climate change this was sort of in the late 90s climate change was you know people were beginning to talk about this as a you know as a, as a big issue and i started um you know maybe you get to a certain age when you start thinking about oh you know where does my food come from and sort of getting interested in gardening and so on um yes um and i suppose at the same time i was getting a little bit feeling a bit stuck in a rut in academia so i made this kind of crazy decision along with my wife um to jack it all in uh get a bit <laughs> of land down here in somerset and start being a farmer um as i say maybe not a proper farmer <laughs> <laughs> um but uh yeah so i started, started doing that uh started growing vegetables basically on a on a small commercial scale um selling them uh kind of uh you know, we call it a veg box scheme over here like a, a community supported agriculture kind of thing um where we were growing vegetables and selling them to people in the you know we live on the edge of a small town here of about twenty five thousand people so we started doing that and um you know that was interesting hard um a big learning curve um uh, and I, I guess i had a slightly naive view that you know if i grew as many onions and carrots as i could i'd, I'd somehow sort of solve all the problems of the world um <laughs> and of course uh you know that that didn't quite work out didn't quite solve all the world's problems so then i a little bit went back to my social science and maybe keyed in again to that kind of stuff about peasant agriculture that i'd studied um you know when i was uh, a, a, a young uh, a young student and started sort of trying to put what i was doing into a bigger intellectual context um you know partly from the social science you know what kind of social and economic and political systems are we all um tied into that that make dealing with these issues dealing with climate change dealing with with food issues so difficult um uh, and also perhaps you know uh, although i don't have a, a a farming or a science background as such you know actually doing the farming and thinking about things like soils and plants and and livestock and the ecology that i was part of um you know sort of putting i was now able to put that in a little bit more of a of, of a sort of wider ecological context so, and obviously that very much ties in with some of the themes that you've been exploring in your work thank you well, uh, I think probably everyone can see why uh, I was very interested to have Chris join us for this conversation. And um, Chris, I just want to let you know that, and I, I've told you this, but um, so I've been doing this work on the order of 15 years or so as well, and but coming at it very much so from the position of an academic and, um, and, and trying to do then communication, just helping people understand these issues while at the same time helping myself. And I stumbled across you and your work with uh, the Dark Mountain Project, uh, right. probably about 10 years ago, which is a collection of writers writing about these issues, and found your uh, writings particularly useful and quickly found my way to Small Farm Future and your essays and have discovered that 
and, and found your voice particularly interesting and unique because it wasn't an academic voice. It's, it's got these academic aspects to it. You have this training and you certainly, but very much coming at it from a practitioner, but an incredibly articulate, deep thinking practitioner, I would say, it's, it's been my experience. <laughs> so, uh, so this is really, I, I just want to say that you've helped me uh, start thinking about these things in broader perspectives, uh, going back more than a decade now. And, and thank you. And so your work, whether you know it or not, but I'm hopefully you can recognize a little bit of it, uh, certainly is in the script of this performance and this delivery. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> so I want to ask you, um, maybe just to start off with this, that uh, um, Certainly part of what we want to do in the performance is, is talk about gaining a vision of where we want to go. Uh, having we, we know we're not sustainable in just about any way civilizationally, certainly with our food system. Um, but knowing that is different than knowing, well, what would a sustainable and vibrant and just food system look like uh, embedded in a broader sustainable and just and vibrant human system? So that's one question, what does it look like? And then another question, of course, that we need to answer is, okay, once we have a vision of the destination, how do we go there? How do we get ourselves to do that? And you've written, I would say, quite eloquently about both of those. So let me just throw that out as an open-ended little bit to muse about. So where do we want to, where, what is the answer you've arrived at? Uh, what is your current thinking on where it is we want to go and also how we want to get there? Okay, tough questions. <laughs> um, and and um, yeah, I mean, as you know, I've just written this book, A Small Farm Future, where I, I, I sort of try and go, go through a lot of this stuff. Um, and part of what I, I mean, part of my thing in that book is to say that there are no answers, basically, um, and not, not in a kind of despairing sense that there's nothing we can do, but in the sense that there's no sort of magic bullet solutions, you know, there's no kind of one single thing where, you know, it'll, it'll make it all all right. So, you know, we've got a lot of tough decisions and tough trade-offs that we're facing. Um, but essentially, I mean, it, you know, the, the clue is in the name of the book, I guess, or in the name of my blog, you know, essentially I'm arguing that we need to relocalize um, our economies and relocalize production. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm kind of arguing that's going to happen anyway. I'm, you know, I, I think it's unavoidable. It, it, it can happen in in some better ways or some worse ways. So, you know, part of what I'm about is trying to find some better ways in which it can happen. But I mean, I think as you show very eloquently, um, you know, in, in your film, um, you know, the the status quo, the present way we're doing things is entirely based on cheap fossil energy, which is not sustainable in the long run. Um, and that's going to have all sorts of economic and political knock-on implications. So we've got to, we've got to rethink this. And um, I'm, you know, it, it, if, if we sort of let it go by default, I think it will lead to a lot of conflict that's going to sort of end up with us, um, you know, being in, uh, in sort of economic strife locally. Um, so what we need to do is is try and um, try and build a, a, a sort of new agrarian local economies in a more convivial and congenial way. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, I mean the the sort of some of the underpinnings of that are 
partly I think if we have more people in an economy that's kind of basically grounded in the ecological potentialities of, of our local landscapes we get better feedback i mean one of the problems um i mean again you've showed you've shown all this very nicely um in your film you know we've got this kind of globalized system where uh, the you know the resources that we're using the food we're buying um what we're consuming um is coming from somewhere else somewhere that we don't know um, um and we really know what it's having are so you know one argument for a small farm future is um you know, if we're producing our livelihoods more locally, the consequences of our actions um, come back to us and we can adjust um, accordingly. Um, I guess there's, a, uh, there's also a whole series of arguments about ecological efficiency where, um, uh, you know, again, the cheapness of fossil fuels, so the cheapness of energy has broken... Um, uh broken open the, the the sort of little feedback loops and little mechanisms that we can otherwise use um at a much lower energy cost to sort of do the sorts of things we need to do so i mean a classic example here on our farm is we have composting toilets um so you know our our liquid and solid wastes shall we say um get collected up uh, we don't use any water you know we're not flushing it away somewhere else using high energy water to you know to take it away somewhere else process it and then sort of have it as a waste disposal problem you know it um we, you know we're creating our own compost using the um nutrients there to go back very carefully, I, I should add, especially if any of our customers are listening. Um, um, uh, we don't, we, we, uh, we don't, certainly we don't use the solids to, you know, we don't put it straight on our um, salad plants that we sell, you know. Um, so, you know, and that's where, you know, that's again, where modern learning, what we know about microbiology and so on can be very important in getting these systems better tuned, but ultimately it's a kind of low input, low impact system um uh and it, you know and it's much more uh, ecologically and biologically efficient um uh so you know there's all sorts of ways in which the households that we live in um you know can then interact with um the gardens and the fields around us and the woodlands you know we've got to get all this sort of balance of of uh you know the domestic and the the cropland and grassland and woodland you know we've, we've got to rethink that um, so that's a, a, you know, another way in which I think the, the, the future is going to be a small farm, uh, a, a more local future. And then also, um, I guess, um, rethinking the, the economy beyond fossil fuels, um, we've got to um, invest in low carbon economic sectors. You know, we need to find work for people, good, fulfilling work in low carbon sectors. Um, and, you know, there's any number of those uh, education um, uh, or music that you guys are involved in um, are, are good examples, you know, various types of caring work, healthcare, and so on. But farming is clearly a crucial one. I mean, it still employs more people globally than, than any other single industry. Um, and not all of those people are having a great time, but that's, again, partly because of the bigger systems that they're tied into. So we've got to get more people into uh, a more labor intensive, um, but hopefully a, 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 a congenial type of farming. And, you know, agriculture, I mean, there's, there's whole debates that you would know uh, better than I do, Rob, about all the issues about soil carbon sequestration and so on. And, you know, we can we can get into all that. But basically, farming has the capability of being, uh, I mean, 
debatable how, whether it can be negative uh, carbon, but it can certainly be uh, less of a carbon uh, source than it presently is. Um, and it can provide, you know, it can provide us with our, our a lot of our material needs and our livelihoods in a low carbon local way. So that's the that's the sort of why um, the how. Shall, shall I pause or or launch into well, the how? <laughs> you know that well. That was that was a kind of a brilliant, very succinct exposition of of, of just a few of the many ways that farming is is so important. And you brought up one thing just now. So we'll come back to and I'll allow, I'll, we'll come back to the question and finish it. But I think this is a good segue. One of the many, um, one of the things you just brought up is that farming agriculture still employs more people than any single industry. Uh, in other words, as we say in the film, we need to eat. And um, it, it's something that occupies our minds in a way all the time. And of course, part of trying to tell the story in this way with the film is is connecting with that viscerally. And I think one of the things that does that is the music. And I want to bring Rebecca into this because I know Rebecca has some pretty, uh, I think, thoughtful considerations as to the connections that get made, hopefully for an audience here. And to to, to introduce that, let me just ask, let me just, let's play this clip uh, this is a little bit of the music for the forage part of the performance that's really addressing this notion of how we feed ourselves. So it is we also know. All is not well in the oceans, and all is not well on land. to acid. Well, we toxify the living soil and watch it blow away. Okay, well, that's about half the the, the movement from Rebecca uh, from Laura Kaminsky's piece, Forage. Um, and Rebecca, I'm 
I know you've had some really interesting comments about just how this music, what it evokes in you uh, about food. Yeah, well, Laura, Laura's writing is is astonishing throughout the whole piece. And in this movement, what always happens to me when I hear it, um, there there's this energized, relentless quality to Laura's writing. And somehow it kind of comes back to something really basic for me, just the very notion that every living being on this planet is looking to eat each and every day. And, and somehow stepping back to really ponder that always strikes me as astonishing. I mean, for us lucky ones, we don't have to work too hard to know when we'll next be able to eat. But for many people, that isn't a given. And certainly for animals that aren't domesticated, it's the primary driver of the day's activity. And so Laura's music, I think, captures this brilliantly in, in kind of a, a wide range of emotions. Sometimes the music is energetic and scurrying, kind of like the title, foraging. Sometimes there's tension that's created with rhythms that are tugging against what is otherwise felt as a groove in the writing. Um, and the movement sort of ends with quite a bit of drama and maybe a little bit of a sense that we're pushing things to the brink. And um, and so there is a, a visceral um, kind of understanding, I think, that goes with just experiencing the music and, and letting it bring those things up. Because in our busy lives, our busy professional lives, there's so much that we take for granted and we don't maybe stop to think about these connections or ask where our food is coming from or ask if if um, the the privilege of knowing exactly uh, that we're going to be able to eat whenever we want to, um, how and why we have that and at what cost. It is just this relentless something that we're always concerned with and yet we never think about those of us, I think, in the position, certainly uh, the middle class, um, uh, industrialized or developed world sort of lifestyle. We're, we're, we're somehow always thinking about food, but never really thinking about it. Um, Chris, I'm interested and feel free to jump in too. And we're, we're going to round back to the notion of how, to, how do we sort of get to this vision and, and, and some other aspects of this vision that you've articulated so well uh, in this book about in Small Farm Future. But I'm interested just as you, as you listen to this telling of the story in this very different way uh, in this performance, did that, uh, what did you make of that? Yeah, it was really interesting to hear Rebecca sort of, um, you know, giving those perceptions of it, you know, and it, it very much rang true to me. Um, and, and I thought, you know, what you did really well in the film was show that the kind of systemic nature of you know the way that uh, all, you know all the interconnections in nature and you know the way that um you know that as as rebecca was just saying the that you know the, the the way that nature is this, this sort of huge symphony of uh, organisms um feeding and um you know this this huge kind of uh, energy medley um i mean the interesting thing i guess is that uh, from a human perspective we can sort of afford to step back and say, you know, how marvelous and how beautiful it is. Whereas up close, um, 
you know, if you're a spider that's been paralyzed by a parasitic wasp that's kind of laid its eggs in inside your abdomen, you know, uh, it, it's not so great, you know. And, and I think this is one of the problems. We've got to have a nuanced discussion about this because a lot of people say, you know, I like I like to watch nature on a, on the TV, you know, but it's pretty ugly up close. Um, but unfortunately, I think, as you show in, in your film, you know, we you know, we can't step outside of it. We are part of that story. And, and you know, we can get so wrapped up in all our electronic devices and being inside the house that we forget we're actually animals, you know, and we, we are part of the story and, and, you know, we are part of the story of planet earth. You know, there's, there's only the one planet that we're on. And so part of what agriculture is about is, uh, you know, like all organisms, we try and make things easy for ourselves. And, you know, there's a lot of us on the planet. And so we try and push, you know, we try and push the envelope, we try and, um, you know, make it more productive of the things we want, and less productive of the things we don't want. And, you know, there are ways that we can do that. But I think as you know, as you've shown in the film, um, you know, we can't, you know, we, we, we can't do that infinitely. I mean, there, are, you know, there are people who argue that, uh, yeah, we can, you know, it's just about the next kind of techno fix around the corner. But I think, um, you know, you, you've shown pretty nicely in the film that it you know it's it's very easy to you know with with cheap energy um you know we've we've sort of pushed all these systems way out of whack and it you know they're coming back on us in in various ways that we you know that we need to deal with you know without kind of silver bullet solutions we need to do the hard work you know we need to be creatures we need to be organs sort of in that story um figuring it out um, and, you know, there are ways that we can figure it out. But again, you know, I guess it's kind of my mantra. <laughs> the way that we can figure it out is by being farmers, you know, being, you know, being in our localities, um, you know, producing food for ourselves, dealing with, uh, you know, the, um, the, the, you know, it's it's a, a, a like all other organisms, it's a big sort of game of, of, you know, push something out there and get the reaction back and constantly adjusting to that. There's no way out of that. Now, that's the game that we've got to play. I wonder if I could jump in for just a second. And in the last podcast with our guests, um, uh, the, the conversation actually moved from life to food because, of course, they're inextricable from one another. And it was revealed that kind of everybody on the podcast um, was a gardener. Um, our our wonderful painter, um, Rebecca Allen, whose uh, beautiful Tondo paintings that you um, that you just saw in the previous clip um, has has um, included a, a really serious study of horticulture in her life in recent years. And um, Brad, my colleague in in the quartet, has completely transformed his his. Um, yard in all kinds of ways. He's growing food and, and um, uh, low water plants and has a habitat for a desert tortoise. And, you know, um, and I wonder, I think sometimes when, when things come up, like you hear something like a small farm future, and it might scare some people, you know, that, that um, abundance is going away or that it's going to be a return to drudgery. And what struck me in the last podcast with with my colleagues and and through my own experience gardening is actually some things um some really important richness that it returns this to to one the act of doing it the act of of um of tending the soil cultivating um yeah. 
nourishing actually being a part of that cycle like you just yeah. said even even just composting your food and knowing that it's going to it's going to um contribute to uh the 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 health of of the land around you there's yeah. a satisfaction in that and so i wonder if if uh, if we could talk a little bit about what um what might be gained in um mm. I, I mean beyond just the abstract notion that we we better do this or else yeah, yeah. No, that's pretty interesting and there, i mean a couple of really interesting things that sort of strike me from what you've just said i mean one is there's almost two contradictory narratives you know one is that farming is this life of drudgery and, and misery that you know thank goodness we've escaped from it but the other is that people actually love to be out in the garden they love to be growing food you know they love to be interacting with nature and to some extent both of those narratives are true um but you know obviously what we need to do is sort of accentuate the the second narrative and try and minimize the first narrative and um, i think part of the first narrative is a historical memory not so much of the intrinsic drudgery of farming but human systems you know exploitive systems you know with, you know if you think about serfdom or slavery you know people being forced to work the land because uh, you know basically to somebody else's benefit because they had no choice so part of the idea of a small farm future for me is um, people having autonomy over their own livelihood you know control over their own production and that can be uh, you know I'm not saying it's necessarily easy you know I think there are difficulties uh, and uh, that we have to confront but you know I mean hard work is often i mean i talk about this a little bit in my book you know we sort of many aspects of our culture we say it's great you know we're hard working people that's a good thing and then people say well you know i don't want to work hard on a farm well you know a bit of physical work you know people are going down to the gym doing all sorts of crazy things to uh, <laughs> keep fit you know so i mean you know nobody wants to be hoeing uh yeah you know a mile long row of uh, cabbages uh, all day so so but you know so we need to have a more nuanced debate about that but we need to focus on the positive story about gardening which is that it's a good thing to do it keeps you fit it gets you outdoors connects you with nature produces food that you know that's part of the part of the cycle of nature that we're part of um well i was just going to say the other thing um that to pick up on that Rebecca mentioned is gardening or horticulture rather than farming and i think that's a really key point as part of the intro about me not being a proper farmer you know because we've got into this whole uh way of thinking that farming is something done on a very broad scale with huge machinery you know get people out of farming big tractors big combines and it's really a very small number, you know, 10, I think 65% of the global crop land is devoted to just 10 commodity crops. Uh, and, you know, we're talking about things like wheat and soya and so on. Um, and so these are all things that are easily tradable, um, easily transportable, easily processable. And, you know, there's nothing wrong. With, I mean, the reason those crops are so widespread is because they have some great characteristics. So, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not saying we shouldn't be growing any of those crops. Um, but I think we need to break down this distinction between farming and gardening. You know, we can grow wheat, you can grow soy on a garden scale, um, but you can incorporate it with a whole bunch of other fruits and vegetables, tree crops. Um, and, you know, that I think we need to be getting into that mindset, um, you know, that part of the problem that we've got, you know, we we can sort of debate, um, you know, the issues that you raise in the film about 
soil erosion and so on um you know there's some different perspectives on that partly this has arisen because you know where where i am here in um southern england it's quite a friendly environment for farming um you know it's it's um it's a, a temperate moist climate uh, it's quite forgiving for farming but obviously what happened historically was that european uh, farmers went out as colonists to other parts of the world where the type of farm practiced the same type of farming and it didn't work out so well in more arid climates so part of this is about trying to recover indigenous practices that people have worked out agriculturally you know in their own um, regions uh, and obviously there's a story of colonial history and colonial conflict that we need to you know, address there as well but essentially i think um that you know part of what i argue is that we need to which is why i'm not a proper farmer you know is to get you know again and, and it's in the title of small farm future you know there's a there's a gradation there's a continuum between you know growing some herbs on a window box in your apartment through to you know one one guy with a big tractor on 3000 acres and we need to you know we need to but we're all farmers. I mean, that's kind of what I say in the book. We are all farmers. We're all eaters. We're all farmers. We're all invested in the food system. So whatever we can do locally to, um, you know, just to get that little bit more interested in our food system and just do our own little bits of production, um, you know, that's what we need to do. Um, but certainly diversifying, certainly thinking about, you know, not just uh, wheat and soy, but, you know, also about vegetables, fruit, tree crops, um, interaction between grass and cropland, where livestock fits into all this, you know, all of this is kind of back in the mix. And, uh, you know, we need to be discussing it much more urgently, I think, and in a more nuanced way than than we sort of generally have in recent years. Uh, you, there's a there's a couple of, well, there are, there's so much in there, but there's a couple of points that I, I, I wanted to suss out a bit more. One of them is this notion of that Rebecca brought up, you know, people think, oh, no, and that you certainly expanded upon that some, this notion of drudgery. But what you're proposing, uh, what, what your vision of, 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 a, of a more sustainable and just and vibrant food system, number one is it's embedded in transformed other systems as well. I yeah, think we'll come back to that. But the other thing is, it's important to point out, I don't think the vision, while there are, there's a lot of notion of reconnecting to lost knowledge in lost ways. And often those are indigenous, uh, as you talked about. So there is that aspect I, that I get out of what you're talking about. But, but you're also not advocating for returning to um, sort of a 19th century farm. Lifestyle, right. I mean, right? Yeah, I mean, it's about, I, I suppose it's about a new, more nuanced debate about technology and and you know the, the the choices facing us so we get into this terrible duality that you know the past was awful and you know that the, the the future is great and we need to kind of get out of that you know um, this is not a nostalgic argument about you know how it would be good to live like the 19th century but it's an argument that if we you know if we look back you know we can use whichever technologies we want you know there's no um you know that there's so much invested on this notion of sort of high tech as a kind of aesthetic of the future that it's gonna you know it's we're gonna get sort of richer and more sedentary and more urban and i mean you know we don't have to you know that to me is not a particularly appealing vision and we don't have to buy into it but that doesn't mean that you know there are no aspects of modern tech you know i mentioned the 
example of, of sort of microbiology and how we understand composting much better now than we used to. But the, you know, the, the interesting thing, uh, you know, once we, once we sort of get out of that whole progress versus nostalgia mindset, the interesting thing about looking back is that most parts of the world, you know, people lived there a long time and figured out what a low impact, low energy farming system looked like. And they were conscious of the issues that they face locally, you know, whether it's, um, you know, aridity, water stress, fire stress, um, floods, um, you know, fertility issues. And so we can learn from that. It's basically all I'm saying. We can learn from that. And once we've sort of abandoned this notion of, 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 of some kind of uh, high tech urban um, sort of disembodied existence, um, you know, we can we can apply techniques that people used in the past because they were good technological solutions to ongoing. You know, we still face all these problems of aridity, fertility, you know, uh, flood or or drought or whatever, fire. You know, and you know, we can look open mindedly at the answers people had in the past and say, oh yeah, you know, we can, you know, we we can we can draw on that and use that in our farming. You know, not not sort of mindlessly replicate it because it's like some rural museum, you know, it's about um, learning from the totality of human experience and, you know, and people in the past had, you know, uh, faced this and thought about this and figured out ways of addressing it that we can learn from. That's pretty much all I'm saying. I, I love all of that. I want to just bring up um, uh, a term that, um, that you mentioned, um, Chris, I, I think um, it came up in your blog, but this notion of permaculture, and right. um, and it's a it's a notion that that I've been pretty interested in for a number of years, and I think it's so the the idea in my mind, the way that it it lives is it's the study of how things intersect. How do how do you put things together so that they systemically work to support one another. So in permaculture, there's this idea that you can create plant guilds and you have an overstory and an understory and different kinds of root systems um, that all work together to actually, you know, amend the soil in ways that, that uh, uh, the idea is you put the right things together and it needs very little help from humans. And um, it's a fascinating, fascinating notion. And uh, uh, and actually, this kind of interactive system at its ideal, in my mind, lives very much um, the way a string quartet functions, honestly. Right. <laughs> and, you know, you have this uh, common goal uh, to serve the music. You, you bring your talents in your line to meld together to create something greater, something that's that's healthy. And uh, and one one more notion that you talked about, which um, hopefully will relate to the other two, is just uh, this idea of when you localize um, efforts, you're paying attention to weather patterns, you're paying attention to your community around you, and, and you're letting those things inform you. And I guess I'm just bringing it back to kind of how so much of our lives and the way we do things has become so outsized, you know, enormous scale. Um, and we think nothing of traveling around the globe um, to make these systems work, which of course is fossil fuel dependent. 
and that's true in agriculture. It's true in all kinds of industries. It's even true in in the in in my own field, uh, um, where success is often defined by how far you go um, to give concerts and how often you do that. And yeah. and I I think um, in my work with the Crossroads Project over these last years, I'm also uh, trying to do the work of reimagining what that field looks like. And I should just say that while we're talking about the food segment, there's also um, in the performance, the last segment is called Reimagine. And this is what's so exciting about, about your work and inspiring, um, Chris, is that you, you are really doing this work of reimagining how these systems can work and function. And, um, and I think I, I hope that that actually it serves as inspiration for whatever field any one of us are in, that we turn our thinking um, more towards these interactive understandings and figure out how we can um, find richness in in uh, localizing mm. and uh, and and seeing that there's exciting potential in doing so. This was just a, a riff on. <laughs> On broadening out kind of um, the food system conversation, but to to uh, share in that that sense of of reimagining, I guess. Yeah, um, I mean, sorry, we can say something. Well, I was. I think this is where you're going, Chris. Which is um, this notion of localization? I think you've written quite eloquently about how that works. Only if other things uh, localization of agriculture works. Only if other things are are transformed as well and maybe you can and discuss that a bit yeah i mean again you know one way in terms of what rebecca was saying about permaculture and localization you know one of the issues again is because we've had this very abundant cheap energy source with fossil fuels it, it's like we've we you know we can almost terraform the world to these kind of huge proportions of our own making so you know so much of what's gone in agriculture is you know the most expensive aspect is human labor therefore get labor out so we have a huge machine well then the huge machine needs to have a huge space to work at its most efficient so you know the hedgerows come out the woods the boundaries come out you know um uh, uh and and then you know that that sort of the, the the cheap energy and the the i mean you show it again nicely in the film in terms of um you, you know the sort of globalization of of the economy and and consumerism you know you get this whole sort of systemic structure that that kind of drives um uh, this uniformity at the local level which is not serving local needs and then it becomes very difficult um you know for people to kind of reconfigure that to local needs um you know here where i live in somerset uh when the railways were built in the 19th century uh you know we grow it, it, it's a kind of relatively warm relatively wet climate here so we grow good grass um so dairy farming uh, became a big thing and the trains would take the fresh milk up to london um you know so at one level people say this is a dairying area which it kind of is and you know intrinsically it's quite well suited to growing grass but partly it's got an agricultural history that's connected with urbanization and you know fossil fueled transport getting milk to london so we kind of need to to, to to rethink um these things um so um 
yeah, you know, permanent permaculture originated from the notion of permanent agriculture, and you know, uh, a, a lot of it is just about kind of um, uh, drawing on those lessons of of people figuring out ecologically efficient forms of farming and and sort of applying them um, in the present day. Um, uh, sorry, I've I've, I've slightly <laughs> got no. off on a tangent from your question, Rob. But your other question was about. Um, the sort of larger systems within which it um, this this occurs, um, and I, I suppose what I would say there, and what what I've try and talk, I, I do talk about at some length in the book, is you know th this rather bizarre economic system that we've got into, where the food system, you know, is which is at the base of everything, but is the one that gets the kind of least um, a, a, a attention and you know the the emphasis is on making food as cheap as possible so that we can be doing all these other things and the way that particularly manifests certainly in you know here in the UK or in the US um, is a whole story about um, land prices and access to land so you know we have um, uh, a economic system that tries to sort of extract maximum value um, from land and you know if we're talking about um, urban um, settings or where people live, that's about housing. So people um, increasingly are paying big bucks to get a roof over their head. Uh, you know, here in the UK, I forget the exact figures, but I think sort of round about World War II, people were spending 30 or 40 percent of their disposable income on food. And now it's 10 percent or less. Um, but all of the rest is going on getting a roof over their head, you know, land prices, um, you know, are, are, are skyrocketing. And I talk about that in the book in terms of sort of economic theories, Ricardian rent and so on. So, again, that's another thing we need to do is get better um, collective access to the land to, that we need to live on and grow our food on. Um, and then, you know, everything knocks on from that, you know, uh, we've got a farming that, um, uh, you know, is tries to get labor out of um, out of farming, because that's the sort of highest cost aspect. Um, but we need to kind of rethink that. And we can't rethink that without rethinking other aspects of the economy, access to land, the price of land, the price of energy, um, and so on. And again, in terms of, you know, the larger themes of your film, the whole history of agriculture in the rich countries over the last uh, hundred years or more, um, you know, has been that labor is expensive and energy is cheap. Um, so you, you know, you, you, you get pushed and, you know, we've had this whole, um, that sort of thing to think through as well here on our farm, you know, you get pushed towards a fossil fuel or a, or a machine solution because it's quicker and cheaper than a human labor solution. But ultimately those solutions I mean, I'm not saying there's no place for machines, but it it tends to push against the sort of connections that Rebecca was talking about, where you're thinking of those um, kind of ecologically rich and sort of human um, involving uh, ways of, of of producing food, you know, which pushes you back to, towards the horticulture. So, yeah, all of these things are interconnected, but ultimately it's the systemic nature, you know, which you which you show so well in the film which is to do with a system um, that essentially says maximizing profit um, you know is the way to um, is the way to organize society you know the the, the, the you know the, the best way of delivering general well-being is a system um, which sort of unleashes profit making or lets the leash off profit making 
and that's the sort of interesting one because we get, you know again i think we we get there's this kind of complicated story where we talk about the market you know we need market-based solutions but and again in my book i say yeah we need markets but you know when i talk about a market i think of it as a as an actual place that i go to sell my food um you know not a kind of globalized uh sort of quantitative you know what's um you know what's the the price of wheat on the sort of chicago exchange and you know there's a whole fascinating history of development of global agribusiness around farming and ultimately the sort of derivative markets and all the baffling financial markets that we you know that, that, that people currently talk about you know when they talk about the market so again it sounds like this kind of quaint thing i'm saying oh you know wouldn't it be nice if we all went back to these sort of canvas awning sort of markets but really that's the way that we've got to um you know uh, it's the way that we can engage with producing our livelihoods locally from a sustainable ecological base you know by uh, you know it is a kind of profit based system but it's not one that makes profit making the 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 heart the root of everything we do you know if you um if you make it possible for local farmers to make a decent you know not an extravagant but a decent income from getting to the market and selling their wares then we're kind of operating locally within the ecological base if what you say if if the market is the sort of global price of wheat that's going to be affected by um you know the the the, the cheapest price of wheat the, the cheapest place that can produce wheat anywhere in the world that's kind of undermining of that local um livelihood based approach so i talk about that quite a bit in the book but you know we 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 sort of got into this way of thinking that the market is how the global corporate economy works but it's not it's a you know in many ways, the global corporate system um, tries to uh, diminish markets and close them down and, and, you know, is based on sort of finding um, best return to profit wherever it is in the world. And that knocks on in all of these sort of complex ways to, you know, the price of our housing, the price of our energy, uh, price of our food. And I mean, it's a it's a big it's a big task. But we, you know, in the light of the crises that you show so well in the film, we've got to rethink this whole thing absolutely entirely from the ground up. So I and I know Rebecca has uh, quite something she wants to bring up here, which I, I, I know is going to be good. I just want to tie this up with something you yourself uh, have said, Chris, or I just read. Uh, you said small scale local agrarianism isn't well suited to generating salaried work but it is well suited to generating livelihoods. And I right. think that's just such a, such a fabulous perspective. I sometimes say that where we wanna to get to is where the goal is not making a killing, but making a living. That notion of the markets and, and really bringing it down to the local level is such a nice, uh, such a nice visualization of that. Rebecca. Right. Well, I, as, as I was listening, um, a sort of snapshot of my life that haunts me kept occurring to me. And um, this is, you know, getting to the airport at some ungodly hour to make a flight. You get there, you're starving, and, um, and you maybe buy a coffee. It's got a plastic lid. And it's a disposable cup, um, and and you're hungry, trying to eat healthy. So you buy uh, a banana, which has been individually wrapped in plastic, and it's like three dollars. Um, and the you know, working on this project, that whole uh, 
that whole scene is something that that haunts me. And that's not to say that, you know, what I do um, as a performing musician and sharing music with other people and 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 in other places has has this wonderful richness. And I I'm not rejecting that, but I think once again, this this kind of um how we define success and how we define health um yeah. is is you know needs to be under scrutiny kind of at at all levels and i want to give a shout out actually to nova which i am uh as i mentioned my quartet um is serving as as co-music directors for because nova does such an excellent job of uh of featuring local artists and local musicians and utah has an absolute glut of wonderful musicians and it's adventurous programming. Um, and I just, I think Nova deserves to be seen as a, as a model for the way that, that the artists are invested in the community and reflecting back what the community is interested in and going through um, and vice versa. The community is supporting its local artists and this notion of, of um, supporting livelihoods on a local level rather than needing to engage in this kind of corporate global system, um, mm. which which is hard to stake a claim in. Um, yeah. But staking a claim in your communities is something else entirely and has all of these other benefits that go hand in hand, a low, you know, on a practical level, certainly a lower carbon footprint, but also richer connections with people that yeah. you see and interact with. And yeah. um, and I, I think I, I just wanted to mention that from the perspective of my field and my world that that actually this perspective is so useful kind of uh wherever you are with whatever you yeah. do yeah it's uh, it's really interesting and i mean one thing i would want to emphasize is you know in i i, I guess in the book and generally in in the alternative farming sector we're always talking about localism you know make it more local and and to some people that can sound a bit exclusive like you're turning your back on you know other parts of the world and that's absolutely not the case you know the the and, and obviously music is a great example of where you know the connections that we can have with other people globally are potentially endless you know human i mean an amazing thing about human culture is how much we learn from each other and and and, and teach each other new things and introduce you know new plants and new new types of farming, you know, the, the, the possibilities to learn and interact with each other in, and, and create rich culture are endless. And I, and I think, you know, ironically, they're better if we are grounded in our, you know, in, in our in our own locales and in producing our own livelihood. It's, you know, it's not about sort of turning your back on um, how other people do things or, you know, other people's um, cultures or knowledge. It's, you know, it's, it's about, you um, grounding an economy that that then um uh, you know that, that that can then reach out in in a more um in a richer way um you know than than the sort of uniformity that we create by by uh, by by globalization um so yeah that, that that's um that's really key and i mean i i'm trying to sort of practice what i preached uh, a month or so ago i i basically tried to live for a, for a week it's not a very long time only from the produce on my own farm without um uh, with you know without um 
uh, yeah, consuming anything from off farm. And it was kind of, you know, obviously being on a farm, I, it, it wasn't something that I'd sort of prepared for, you know, so if I'd, if I'd like worked up to it and, and, you know, we, to some extent, we've been geared to producing vegetables for, for sale rather than just producing our own livelihood. I mean, I'm sort of moving a little bit more in that direction, but it was interesting on the one hand, how challenging it was, you know, partly because, for example, we don't have, um, you know, I, I do like coffee, you know, and <laughs> part of, you know, part of this is, you know, is, is you know, to what extent, um, you know, can we import a few luxuries, but try and ground, you know, our practice in producing most of our livelihood locally. But yeah, a nice milky coffee in the morning uh, is something that uh, that I like a lot. Obviously, I can't produce coffee and we don't have dairy animals on the farm. So, you know, that was a little bit of a struggle. But, you know, there are substitutes that we can create locally. Um, somebody, a friend of mine here locally, gave me these salted um, slows, blackthorn kind of wild plums, which were the, the best olive substitute that I've ever tasted. But I would, you know, it's so much easier to go to the store and, and buy a jar of olives than to think about what we have here locally that might do the job. Um, but the interesting thing was because I was living um, off my my on-farm diet, it made me explore my own farm and think about, um, you know, I've I, I got the sea buckthorn and um, blackberries that normally I might think, uh, you know, I can't be bothered to walk down to the other side of the farm and spend ages picking these fiddly little berries. Um, <laughs> but because I was, you know, because I was doing it and grounded in it that's what I did and it was great and it, it, it completely added and enriched my diet obviously I kind of had to spend a little bit more time doing it but that takes us back to this whole discussion we've been having about you know how we how we value our time compared to the energy compared to biodiversity compared to other economic sectors and you know these are the things you know we're starting from a difficult low base but you know these are the things that really we need to be um, engaging with much more urgently, I think. I think that's just a wonderful sort of wrap of this notion of, you know, we, we know we have to change things. And we're all, that makes all of us nervous on all kinds of levels. But when you start to realize that involved in that change, that experience that you just described is also a, a, a prod of uh, you're being pushed to explore the things right around you. Right. We can all relate to the fact that, in, here in the town that I live, if there's a restaurant that opened recently, I won't know about it. You know, I I, I learned everything I was going to learn about this town in the first year, and, and now I don't explore as much. And right. I used to, pre-COVID, say, oh, well, when I go to a new city, when I go traveling, well, then I'm going to explore. But I don't explore yeah. what's right in my own backyard sometimes. Yeah. So, Chris, I, I just want to thank you again for uh, taking the time to talk with us. Uh, for those of for those who of you who are interested, Chris's uh, website smallfarmfuture.org is uh, fabulous. His new book is fabulous, and in terms of envisioning both our food system and connecting it to the larger systems around us, I just can't think of a, a of a more erudite, interesting, soulful voice uh, than Chris's. So I strongly urge everyone to to explore his, his essays and work further. And I know we've got a few more people to thank. So thank again, Chris. We've got a few more people to thank. Rebecca, uh, could you help us out? Absolutely, yeah. And a, and a heartfelt thank you from me too, Chris, for joining us today. 
And we have a list of season sponsors who we need to thank. As my colleague Brad said at the last podcast, it takes a village. So we'd like to thank the Utah Legislature, Utah Division of Arts and Museums, the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation, the Salt Lake County Zoo Arts and Parks, the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation, Isotope, Salt Lake City Arts Council, the Cultural Vision Fund, Dominion Energy, Rocky Mountain Power Foundation, the Alice M. Ditson Fund of Columbia University, and the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music. Thank you all so much for joining us today. This has been the Nova Podcast. Our hosts were Rob Davies and Rebecca McFowl. Our guest was Chris Smage. This episode was produced by Chris Myers. The Nova Podcast is funded by listeners like you. You can donate to support Nova's programming at novaslc.org. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Send an email to info at novaslc.org. On our next episode, system scientist Elizabeth Sawin and photographer Garth Lenz connect the dots of our discussions and help us see the big picture. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and share the Nova podcast with your friends. We'll see you next time.